Hey, everybody. We're back for another episode of the 30 Podcast. I'm Mike Vorkanoff. I work for The Athletic. Joining me, as always, Jared Diamond. He works for The Wall Street Journal. Jared, how are you? I'm great. And know what else is joining us is your new podcast microphone. Yes. First time. So hopefully the audio quality of this podcast is far better than our typical uh, sounds like we're running outside in a hurricane audio quality. Yes, I hope so too. I hope that we'll pick up all the best nuances of my voice and none of the worst. Good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jared, we have a tremendous guest today. I am a big fan of his writing and his overall Twitter musings. I'm sure you are as well. Um, It's Ted Berg of USA Today. And I just was DMing him the other week. uh, Last, this week, maybe last week. I've lost off track of time. I'm sure Ted feels the same way that I was so happy that he included Russian food in his top five foods he had as part of his like World Cup uh, food scavenger hunt that he did. So Ted, thanks for joining us and thanks for including Russian food in there. Thank you for having me and for uh, coming from someplace that it turns out has pretty good food. Uh, because that was that was the big surprise to me, really. I, I did not know. I, I guess the reputation I had uh, been familiar with for Russian food was not a terribly good one. And then I had some delicious Russian food. Yeah, man. I'm skeptical of this, Mike, and both of you. I've been to Russia, and I thought the food was terrible. Well, maybe you're eating the wrong places. Maybe yeah. you didn't do enough research. Did you go to like is the it, Pizza Hut of Russian food or something? I don't know. I the whole time I was just sort of I, I was very I was younger then. I wasn't as open minded to different kinds of food. I may have just been unappreciative of all the beets. Yeah, I'm just gonna. There were a lot of beets, and I don't really like beets. So, so the part of the thing. So what what Mike is referring to is the I did a I ate. Uh, food from 23 different World Cup countries in, in New York City and, and wrote about them all. And I think a lot of it was just sort of identifying foods from those places that I would clearly like. And in this case, it was, you know, it was like dumplings and it, I was clearly going to like it, right? If, if I had been forced to eat some sort of beet-based cabbage dish, <laughs> I would not have liked that. <laughs> I would like to see the beet cabbage. Beet-based cabbage. <laughs> That's yeah, probably sure. a thing. Right? There, there's both there's both beet based dishes and cabbage based dishes, but I don't think I've eaten anything that mixes the two. Although both are hearty staples. I am thinking outside the box. You have just well, like I'm, just re reinvented Russian food. Well, what I'm wondering is is it possible that Russian food and, and many world cuisines? I think we get this. We have this assumption that it's best in the country of origin. Uh-huh. But is it possible New York Russian food is just actually better than food in large swaths of actual Russia? No. I believe it's possible that it is. No, because I eat every time I eat Russian food when I go out. It, I mean, it's great. Um, but then I'm like, wait, this it just doesn't taste the same. I think there's the bias of of home cooked food. Um, that no matter where you're from, always just feels better. It tastes better and just feels more like worthwhile. What about your parents' food or your grandma, your grandparents' food? Is it great? Yeah, I. You should come over sometime. I'm learning how to make Russian food as well now that I'm kind of stepping into like uh, my my culinary my culinary uh, trials as I made corn tortillas from scratch earlier today. Ted and I will be there for some Russian food. Please. 
have it ready. We'll be there. Have you considered some sort of like Russian taco, like a new a fusion cuisine? Uh, yes, I have done that. It was more of a um, a Russian burrito with blini. Uh, I highly recommend it. Is I don't that a cabbage or beet. <laughs> no, blini are basically the Russian <laughs> version of of crepes. Basically, it's like what it's what you said in your story. Every food has the same. Every culture has the same food. It's just like different. It's called something different, and it's either like a little bit bigger, a little bit thicker, but it's all basically the same. And they all, when you date it back far enough in your Wikipedia rabbit holes, it turns out they all basically come from the same thing. It's like, it's like oh, like you know, everybody has noodles because everybody has given each other noodles at some point along the way. Yeah, I mean, like if you look at Russia, you know, there's a large influx of like French and Germans into their aristocracy over the years, and then you know the French and Germans were influenced by you know another culture, and then like it just goes on and on, and we all start in the same place, eating the same stuff over a fire. Right. All right. Anyway, uh, on to actual things, although I could talk about food for a, a very yeah, long time. You could just make this. A, is, that, is that not the podcast? <laughs> no, well, we're going to. Yeah, we'll circle back around to it at, at one point, I promise. Um, but Jared and I, we were excited to have you on because we wanted to uh, talk to you about your career, which is, you know, from what I understand, very long and winding. And you're at a great place now with USA Today and um, for the win. And you do like awesome stuff there. But I was wondering, how did you how did you get there? How did you get to uh, being Ted Berg at USA Today? Uh, a lot of good work. Uh, a lot of good luck, not good work. I said good <laughs> work. That was like that was a Freudian thing, maybe. But it's not it's not good work. It really isn't. It's it, like I mean, there's some of that. There's some uh, some hard work for sure. But I lucked into this career, and I kind of feel guilty about it still. I was in grad school in this is like 10 years ago now more than that uh i was i was finishing off a master's i intended to go into academia and i saw a craigslist ad for a part-time job at mlb.com uh they were looking for good editors like in terms of of actually copy editing and i had you know i've been doing all this writing in in grad school and i was working in uh, the nassau community college like writing lab and so I had sort of the writing qualifications that it turned out they were looking for. They, I guess they had had a run of hiring very computer savvy people without necessarily tons of editing skills and they were looking for, for vice versa. And I, they pulled my name out of a, my future boss pulled my resume out of a reject pile because he thought it was funny. Because he thought it was funny that I had on there that I was a Shea Stadium hot dog vendor, and that my email at the, my email address at the time was Ted at awesomeburrito.com. and so he was like, "Let's bring in this freak and interview him because at least it'll be good for a laugh." And then he gave me a job, and now it's like twelve years later, and I have a, a writing career. So the moral of the story is: sell hot dogs leads to great success. I want to say my mom and my girlfriend at the time, now wife both told me I should take that off my resume because it looked unprofessional and I left it on there and it got me a job. Why did you leave it up? Because I thought it was funny and it was, it wasn't like I didn't do it. It was, you know, it was, it was relevant experience. I sell hot dogs. <laughs> sure. If you have to, if anyone ever filed a story about hot dog vending, you'd be the perfect editor for that story. I, and I have written stories about vending hot dogs and because yeah, it, uh, so so then, and then from there, I guess I so I worked at at MLB.com. It was like a part-time job. Uh, there's weird turns there uh, as well. Um, really dark one, actually. I um, 
uh, Jared, I think you know Tom Borstein. Uh, sure. So Tom and I were both working on a site called WCSN.com, which is now defunct. It was an Olympic sports site. Uh, and during the time I was working there, when we were, I was as a part-timer, I, I helped out this guy. We, we sort of, the two of us, not knowing how to monitor or fix a broken video stream, sort of talked it out over the phone. And he praised me. He said, like, he told his bosses and my bosses what a great job I had done in helping him. But, like, I didn't, I, I'm not saying this to be, like, mock humble or anything like that. You guys know I'm not in any way humble. I really didn't do that much to help this guy. Like, the two of us didn't know what we were doing, and we kind of figured it out. And he was like, oh, Ted was so great about this. And then, like, I, this is so messed up. The guy, that, that guy, like, two days after randomly praising to me, got hit by a car and died. And then there were all of a sudden, you know, uh, among all of the, like this horrible event, and I, I didn't know the guy personally, but it was horrible for all the people he was working with at the site. Then there were also all these hours to cover on the site, and I, I wound up getting my first full-time job because this guy praised me and then died, like, immediately. It's dark. Wow. That is, this is the first story of death. That been on I, I mean, I, I feel guilty saying it but that's the truth like that's what happened and like i'm i'm very thankful to this guy for like i really wouldn't have i don't think in any way i would have my job now if this guy hadn't taken the time to tell his bosses like oh ted did a great job on this video screw up we had last night uh wow. and, and so you know i'm i am legit thankful for that and i'm thankful that we just had a tom borstein reference on the podcast yeah those of you don't know tom borstein Hey, he'll he back works, up my story. He'll back up my story. He works at uh, he works for BAM, MLB Advanced Media. He also works at CBS, and he's a fascinating character. He uh, knows more about official scoring in baseball than anyone who is not actually an official scorer. He has he has a hobby of just being interested in official scoring in baseball, um, which I think is a really cool hobby because it's so nerdy. I have Therefore, never I met like I have never met anyone more passionate about sports officiating. Yeah, he, he is really into, in general, the sort of peripheral activities around sports. Sort of the jobs in sports that you just take for granted. So refs, scorers, just announcers. Like, I don't know if he actually likes real sports, but he really <laughs> likes the things around sports. And I kind of think that's fine. Uh, I, I don't. I don't even know what to say. That I feel like I now want to have him on a podcast. It makes for a lot of interesting conversations. It would be an interesting. It would be an interesting podcast. Well, we may have to have him on. He recently texted me at the night, uh, the night of some White Sox Twins game, saying that the official scorer was wrong in how he allotted earned runs versus unearned runs, and he's asking if I had seen this, and I said no, I was not watching the Twins White Sox game nor was I paying attention to the official score. He said, well, I think this was wrong. I looked it up and I said, yeah, I think it is wrong. The next morning it was fixed and corrected. So he was right and the official score was wrong. And I think that Tom called Elias himself and told them that he denied that to me. I, I would not be shocked. <laughs> well, All right. Man, it's not about Tom Borstein on this podcast. Lord, please get us back on track. I, I'm still I'm still floored at Ted's story, just like the the macabre story that is he that told him. I feel I mean I, I feel bad like again like I feel super bad even sharing it because so and I feel like so there's like a ton of guilt right like I was I was raised Catholic so there's always 
guilt aspects to everything. There's a ton of guilt involved, like underlying everything I do because of this. When, when do you I think, like, I, I first remember reading you at SNY, um, and <clears throat> obviously, like, you moved on. And I was wondering, like, when someone who comes from this uh, non-traditional background, which is a word I hate, so let me just use it, um, and, and then you obviously... My, oh, my, my non-traditional background as, like, straight white guy from <laughs> Long Island who went to a pretty good college background and somehow landed in sports journalism. It's a very non-traditional I think, background. I think non-traditional background is just journalism code word for, oh, he didn't go to Northwestern or Syracuse or Missouri. Yeah, I didn't do that. Yeah, and I didn't go to journal, and I never like, and I always, I always like admired journalism, and and it was even something like sometimes people would say like, oh, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'd be like, well, I'm obviously not going to play sports, and I like sports, and I like writing, so maybe I'll be a sports writer. But it wasn't something I was like, I wasn't, I wasn't really great at pursuing anything uh, in college or anything like that. I did, I actually did a lot more broadcasting in college than than writing. Um, so it wasn't like, I, I, and again, uh, something I sort of feel bad saying, but it wasn't like, oh, this is my lifelong dream. It was like, wow, I lucked into this thing. That is a lot of people's lifelong dreams. And now I kind of understand why, because it's so dope. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, at what point did you feel, and I know you, you lack humility and all that, but like, at what point did you feel like you had made a career of it and that this was something that was, you know, feasible for you? I mean, I'm still trying to feel that way honestly like you know it's a it's not the, the most stable business in the world what so I feel like right and, and I no feel one like, told me that and like the reality of it is what we do is so enviable to so many people that if you you know at, like at, at any given point they could decide and i don't even know that they'd be wrong and I've, i have no indication that this is happening but someone could say like hey we could hire two people for, for your salary who will be twice as hungry and work twice as hard and make twice as many posts and reports and all these different things and like I don't even know that that's a, that's a, a bad equation from a, from a business perspective so I feel like part of the reason I keep trying to work hard is just like you, you're always kind of looking over your shoulder can I, can I just say like the exact scenario you put out I remember I was going up for a job uh, it was a few years ago and I was like, I think I was the final candidate. They kept telling me like, oh, you know, yay, you're the leading candidate and all that. And then they said right at the end when I was, you know, it was kind of far along and I was like, well, you know, what's going on here? Uh, and they're like, you know, our boss has decided that we would rather hire two people who are much cheaper and they'll just be able to, you know, blog more and do more of the things that you need to do now to be digital. And I was like, all right, well, that was fun for a while it lasted. Did you do that? Yeah. They said that straight up yeah they literally hired two other people instead and i was like i mean i guess all right i, I can't hate on it i i just wish i hadn't wasted like the last few months if i'd known this is gonna go a different direction when i was at smy and and leaving smy and, and i uh i had sort of i've been hired there in an editorial capacity to work on the websites and i wound up writing so much because i liked writing so much more than like administrative work that when they were hiring my replacement, I was there. I was leaving on good terms, so I was there when they were hiring my replacement, and they were telling the people who came in, we're not looking for another test. What does that even mean? <laughs> well, they, didn't, they wanted someone who wasn't uh, like trying to 
make themselves a writer, which is what I was trying to do, and it worked. Um, but it, you know, it was they were looking for someone to do those administrative jobs that I had been blowing off for like three years. <laughs> well, so on a serious note, though, what I'm so interested in is like we talk about traditional, non-traditional, um, and I think what when people say traditional or, or non-traditional, I mean people that sort of got into journalism by like a more roundabout path as opposed to people like myself and even Mike who like ah. to be journalists. Oh, you were you were working for the paper in Rutgers. You Yeah, yeah. No, but I I You I, didn't I, fall into it. <laughs> I I also spent my first year out of college working for free and working at Nordstrom every morning after I got yeah, fired from my waiting job. For a little while too, but you but, but it sounds like with Ted, like you had a lot of different experiences before journalism crossed your radar, right? You're doing a lot of things. I know you had a lot of odd jobs. I think you were in a band for a while. Yeah, yeah. I was, I mean, I thought, I had, I had like a weird college experience because it, it, it was also dark. We don't have to get into that. This is not who I am. I'm not like only talking about dark things. Uh, I graduated, graduated college, basically the story is, I graduated college with no direction whatsoever. I was a musician. I had been Which I don't think is that rare. No, no, but I had, I had I majored in English, I had finished my English major, and then I became, I essentially wound up with enough, enough credits in music to be a double major. They didn't have it, so it was a music, a music minor, but I was so focused on music, my uh, like junior and senior year of college graduated thinking like, oh, I'll just be a rock star then. Uh, turns out, not a lot of openings for trombone players in, in rock bands, no. uh, so I started playing, I started playing the bass, I joined a band, like I was like, I thought... You always think when you're 22 or 23 that like this band is special and we're really going to do this. Uh, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous thing to think. Long story short, it didn't happen. So yeah, so I was uh, I was working. I was a temp at Macy's.com for a while. I got fired there. I was a substitute teacher. I was a JV football coach. I worked in a deli. I was you know playing in this band the whole time. Uh, I. Like I said, I worked in the in the community college. I tutored for the SATs a ton. That was like my my primary income for for a long time, uh, and yeah, like a lot of different things. And, and really, just a few years uh, before I, like I said, lucked my way into the job at MLB.com. But those experiences you did have, like, how much of an impact do you think they've had on your writing career? Like the fact that you had all those experiences, life winding, twisting, turning, like. Not every journalist has that, and I wonder if you think that actually helped you in a way now that you are so writing full-time and quote-unquote made it. I really don't don't think if you were like looking at the the, the scenario in which I'm podcasting right now, you'd say that this is what making it looks like. I'm in my kitchen like surrounded by my kids' stuff and dirty dishes and sitting in my, my gym clothes sweating a lot. Uh, this is it, and in the kitchen's tiny. It's not. I mean, I'm not ready to say made it, uh, but I don't know. I mean, to answer your question, I don't know. It's a, it's impossible to, you know, divorce myself from my own personal experiences and say how I would be as a writer otherwise. Like maybe I would be a lot better if I had if I had gone on a more like normal course. I guess. Um, I hope. I guess that that having had at least some experiences in a different industry and different industries and, and it gives you a little bit more perspective, but 
I would also hope that if I if I didn't have that, I would be open minded enough to uh, maintain you know the the perspective that or at least to understand that people are out there different than me who haven't had their whole lives uh, in this like what has now become like a pipe dream of a job. I do find it interesting that journalism seems to be like one of the like few ah maybe not few I don't I don't want to categorize but one seems to be one of the professions where. Like you can take so many different routes to it and still be able to succeed. Obviously, some conditions willing, um, but it's not as if you need to go to journalism school. You don't need to take any classes. Uh, you can kind of find your way into it in, I, through different avenues. I mean, it was hard. Man. Oh, I'm not saying it's easy. Like I had, because like someone was like, I remember the first time I went out to cover something. Someone was like, "Oh, file a cider." I was like, "What? What are you talking about?" <laughs> <laughs> well. And, you know, and, like, inches on this and it's like oh i gotta you know like everybody makes the same joke i got a tape measure out there yeah you're like you you know how many times we've heard that joke first of all and second of all like you don't know what that means it's like just tell me how many words just look all of these things yeah there's so much coding for me and i was part of it was like my my own attitude was that i was never like someone to ask for help like now that i for the first few i mean before uh like the first few years I was credentialed with the Mets even like I didn't talk to anybody I didn't talk to anybody because I saw like I had this chip on my shoulder and I was like oh the rest of the media this is like this these are the guys who are or you know spreading the talk radio nonsense which is a totally different thing but I saw it was all one and the same Uh, I'm right about everything these people are all wrong about everything I don't want to make friends with them because I want to be able to call them out uh, like my heroes at Fire Joe Morgan or whatever, and so I didn't. I didn't want to ask anybody for help, and so I should have, obviously. But but that's not how I was, and so it was hard just trying to like negotiate all of the different little particulars of what's a very weird job. Like the first time I walked into the Mets clubhouse, I saw Andy Chavez just he was just full on naked, and I just assumed I was in the wrong. Like I got I got scared and ran out because I not because I was scared of Andy Chavez's nakedness, but because it was like, well, I'm, I'm obviously in the wrong place, right? This is, I shouldn't be in the room with the changing ball players, but that's part of the job, right? Like, that's just now you grow accustomed, and now the locker room setups are a little bit different, and, and you don't get uh, quite that view that I got that day, but but you, uh, you know, you grow accustomed to this. Is, this is a reality. Naked baseball players, it's part of our life. You just accept it, and the first time is so weird. It was so weird. It was, you know, it was Eddie Chavez, right? Like, so this guy's a hero. And, and it was like, oh, my God. Well, you know, I'm changed forever now, right? Because I've now, now seen this guy I've only known from watching play baseball in, like, his complete indecency. Uh, and, and that's, again, you said you just, you just get used to it. And you, you just learn, get used to this it. Is, this, is what, this is what happens. And, and it happens less now that the clubhouses are bigger and – Guys have a little have more privacy, which I think is probably oh, uh, uh, sometimes that makes our jobs more difficult, but probably maybe a good thing for everybody. How would you describe what your job is and for like what is what do you do? What is for the win? What what is your what is your place in the baseball writing world? Would you say it seems pretty eclectic and sort of fascinating I, to me? I wish I knew, and and that's I, I like I think that. When I look around, like I, it's hard to find people with jobs that are exactly like mine, just because uh, it seems like so many baseball writers 
just so are so exclusively dedicated to writing about baseball and like I've I've never been asked to or, or forced to do that and if anything I'm encouraged to to write about food or like silly internet culture things that happen um, so I'm like again like super lucky just to be able to have a ton of flexibility um, I and and I get to do sort of like it's not whatever I want right it's not like I could just oh, I want to take a week off and, and meditate on a, a YouTube video I just saw or something like that. Like, you know, they want to see some output. And again, I have that in my head that there's always the someone else who would love to have my job. Uh, so so there is, there is like, I need to be putting stuff out there. Um, but I can, I can write about and pursue just about anything I want. If I want to report out a baseball story, work on something long, I can do that. They'll give me the time to do that and the, and the resources I need for that. If I want to do, like so this morning I posted something that was 11 words long. It was the shortest thing I've ever posted in my life. Uh, <laughs> I only had one sentence worth of stuff to say about this silly gif of, of Yadier Molina throwing a, a rosin bag at Adam Wayne, right? So why, I, you know, why write more than one sentence? Uh, I get to do stuff that is in print for the paper sometimes, uh, especially like during the postseason, uh, and and in that way I do I get to do like uh, some of the I think probably more exciting uh, elements of traditional journalism, like you know writing on deadline after a, a postseason game or, or before uh, you know when, right after the availability stuff like that. But then also uh, if I find something silly and fun that I think people might be interested in reading about, uh, I have the time to pursue that. Like last year. I spent like several days of the summer tracking down a story about a guy in the Bronx who threw an avocado at a bodega employee <laughs> because he was reported as a college baseball player and it said he was a shortstop and I noticed in the video he's throwing left-handed. So I was like, what's the story with this? Turned out, the case of mistaken identity, the actual baseball player they said it was, was playing in an indie league in California, had no idea that his name was broadcast around the internet as a guy uh, throwing avocados at a, a random bodega employee in the shadow of Yankee State. But I feel like that that like your uh, indescribable job title or whatever kind of reflects the, the the trend that some you know a good portion of sports writing has done, which is it is no longer just um, kind of like separate and apart from culture writing. It is a lot of culture writing now. Like sports is culture rather than just sports being sports, and so the way that we cover it reflects it in a lot of ways. And you know I think. Like, uh, what, what was it? There's that Deadspin thing, like, right? Talking about, um, mentioning all the different times that we've written about athletes as doing, like, normal people things, which was snarky and funny. And, but also, you know, writing about sports is no longer just writing about, uh, you know, what they do on the field, right? I feel like any place that strictly covers sports in that, in that sort of way is, is kind of really behind the times and lagging in some sort. I kind of look at it from a perspective of like, and and I guess this, I mean, maybe this does go back to some of the stuff I did before I had this career. Is I, I kind of, and and this, I, maybe this sounds pretentious also, but I kind of think of it as like being an entertainer, right? And like I know that that's different than traditional journalism. I know like there is an obligation to the truth, obviously above everything, and there is a a role for people who are doing the political journalism. And right now, like uncovering all the wacky stuff that's happening in our world but that's not the job that I'm paid to do I'm paid to give someone something to look at 
while they're in their office uh, on their lunch break. And maybe that's something interesting and insightful and researched and data-driven about baseball. Or maybe it's just, hey, look at this silly photo, right? Here's a shirtless photo of Harry Carey from 1978 or whatever. So I just think, like, okay, like my, my job is to sort of occupy people's time. And uh, there are a bunch of different ways to do that. Baseball being one of them. Baseball, certainly. I mean, you know, obviously, the people my target audience are like Mets fans who care what I had for lunch. So it's like a very tight niche here. But uh, I don't know. I guess there are there are enough people out there to apparently justify paying me to do this, and I'm not gonna like try to knock anything over on you know like or or draw attention to myself until uh, someone you know says or determines that it's it's not worth doing that. Well, I think your your like your writing about food, especially during the World Cup, was kind of, you know, it showed off the universality of like the way that we write about sports, right? Like it's not just stuck in one place anymore. How did you? I know you had you you do your sandwich of the week column, like you wrote about all the different foods from the different countries that were involved in the World Cup. Like, how did you start writing about food, and and what are you like trying to do with that other than just have fun and and write something interesting? Um, I started, you know, I, when I first started writing at, at it, well, first I had a column at SMY. When I started uh, Ted Quarters, which was the name of my blog at SMY, I first was like, well, you know, like I have, I started it basically because I didn't want to exclusively write about the Mets anymore. And so I started doing like every now and then I would do a post about food or a post about, uh, you know, some other sort of culture thing. And it just seemed like the food ones were incredibly popular with people and uh the one time the so it was new york magazine published a list of like the 101 best sandwiches in new york and i wanted to see actually it was sort of similar to the world cup food thing one week i just said like well i wonder how many of these sandwiches i could get to in the course of one week uh and i wrote about all of them and people seemed to really like it and i really like doing it uh i think that food is often you know because of the stuff we were talking about before because of like the the cultural underpinnings that come with all of it uh it's often sort of like an interesting avenue to write about other things too um so i've I've always liked writing about it uh i don't i still lack four words to describe how food tastes um but i can certainly wikipedia the name of that food and find out like the backstory of it and stuff like that um so yeah, it was just it was something that started then, and something I'm I'm lucky that people have always people who have been my bosses, and there's been a series of them now, have just always sort of encouraged me to do. Uh, so I'm again, it's the type of thing where it's like, okay, uh, yeah, it's like like the World Cup food thing, right? Like, what what a ridiculous, incredible assignment is that? That like, I, I almost sort of brought it up as a as a half joke when we were talking about. World Cup ideas. It's like I could I could ride my bike around the city eating different World Cup foods. And someone says, "Oh yeah, that sounds great to that." Like, oh man, like uh, just just okay, 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 okay. Don't say anything. Like let me great. Like I will go do that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I will do it until someone tells me to stop. I guess. Yeah, and I think that's a. I mean that like everyone kind of hopes for that type of freedom, don't they? Yeah, I mean, like, again, I can't speak for everyone, but I certainly do. You know, it's almost, I mean, that's almost, at this point, like, that's that's almost like the, the hardest part about my job is that I have so much freedom that it's like, it's like a lot of pressure. You know, you're like, they're like, okay, write about what, you know, pursue anything you find. In it. When, you, when you can pursue really almost anything you want to write about, 
then that puts a lot of pressure on you to come up with good stuff to write about. Is there, because you do have like, um, I, don't, I don't, you know, this eclectic mix of stories uh, and kind of an eccentric way of looking at it, like where do your ideas come from? Like where do you get um, the inspiration to write about I don't know, whatever it is. I, you wrote something good about, I think it was Mike Trout. It was the All-Star break or before the beginning of the season? Everything, time just like is all one one for me now. I, I mean, there's not, there, so I've read about Mike Trout every Monday. <laughs> so there's been a lot of stuff I've written about. I think, about, I think it was about him not being like, uh, you know, superstar enough or something like that. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's like sort of like the common theme of Mike Trout writing in general now because that's like the one hot take you can have from Mike Trout is like this guy isn't famous enough because other than that, there's really nothing to say. He's just the best. Uh, so I, I think about, I mean, it comes from, Twitter a lot of times I see something some people arguing about something and it's like oh, I got something to say about this but I can't do it in 280 characters and I don't want to deal with that nonsense so let me just take it to for the win and write what I have to say uh, sometimes it's just randomly clicking around the internet and finding stuff uh, today today I just wrote a thing about uh, I, I got I saw a cricket highlight that was trending and I was like, cricket's cool. I started reading about cricket. I find out there's this rule in cricket where basically, the if the I mean in baseball terms, if the visiting team is winning by enough by 200 in cricket, uh, entering the top half of what we would call the the last inning. Uh, it's it does not the terminology is different in cricket, but so basically, if in the in the cricket in the baseball analogy. The visiting team is winning by a certain amount of, t- of runs entering the top of the ninth. They can forego the top of the ninth and just cut straight to the bottom of the ninth. And I think that would be a good rule for baseball if they wanted to shave 10 minutes off occasional blowout losses and wins. Uh, and so that kind of came up today because I was way, way, way down a cricket rabbit hole. Like it's a, it's a weird job in that I get to just sort of pursue things that interest me on the internet and then write about them. Your job is amazing, and it sounds really fun, and I would love to talk about it forever, but I know you have an actual job to go do and post things. But before we go, I do want you to share one story that we had together at the Burbank Airport. We had a celebrity, pseudo-celebrity yes, sighting. that's true. pseudo-celebrity well, I do. We, we saw, we saw uh, is it Kristen or Kirsten Shaw? Chris, Kristen I don't Shaw? actually know, and that's uh, part of it, because we both saw so it's Kristen. Okay, Kristen, Kristen Shaw. Shaw, who was uh, who was Mel from Flight of the Concords, which is how I knew her. Yeah, uh, and she's also in. She does voice the character in Bob's Burgers. She's very she's, funny. She's uh, very funny, and she has a very distinctive appearance. Yeah, everything about her is pretty distinct. She's yeah, like she's uh, yeah. We we well, all three of us, I would say, were reasonable enough to fly out of Burbank. Yes, during the postseason, we were flying out of Burbank, and I think both of us were like, "That's definitely yeah." That this is no, that's a no doubt, no doubter. Like that's a, that's a famous person. Yes, definitely was a famous person. But I didn't know her name, and I had no idea how to look her up because I didn't know anything she was on. So I just was googling like famous person who may be at Burbank Airport, which is all of them. Uh, yeah. Um, but but I, I I believe I I would have at least been able to identify her as Mel from Play of the Concords. Yes, and no one bothered her, which I uh, uh, yeah no one bothered. 
Very I, nice. I saw someone on the plane was was definitely acknowledged her because she was also on. I don't know if you and I were on the same plane, but she and I were on the same plane, and someone on the plane was definitely like politely talking to her about her work. I'm sure she loved that. Uh, Maybe she did. Maybe she's not quite big enough where it's annoying. I mean, I think I I don't know. I don't know where that. There's a cutoff, right? Because I have had people I've identified on the street who have seemed like they were bothered by that fact. And people I have identified on the street who have seemed like they were so psyched that I recognize. Yes. Well, I recently, maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was on the D train leaving Rockefeller Center by my office, and Amy Schumer was on the train. I went to, I know Amy Schumer since sixth grade. You know that? You're kidding. I did not know that. Middle school and high school together. That's the most famous person I know. Well, nobody bothered her on the train, and I thought that was pretty cool. Because definitely everyone recognized. Sir. See, I I would have bothered her. I even had actually one time with Amy, one time where I saw her on the street and I was like trying to get like madly getting her attention, and she for like I could tell for an instant was like oh some annoying fan and then she's like oh hey you know like I mean we again I've known her since sixth grade. But it was like so hey we were in sixth grade math together. Right. I was like well you know it's funny because now in retrospect I can remember and it's not like we were like close friends or anything like that but. I can remember instances of like really funny things that she said and did that like I guess count as like early Amy Schumer material. Like she had a whole bit. Uh, she told me while we were running a bake sale because we were both in student government, and she had this whole thing about like chewing pens. And it was very funny, and like I still remember some of it. Uh, and like I didn't know, you didn't know then that it was like you're you know you're like watching Lou Gehrig play in high school. Yeah, that's really funny. Bork, and before we go, any celebrity sightings you want to share? I, when I was a kid, my sister and I saw Andre 3000. We took a photo. That was really exciting in L.A. Um, I ran into George Gervin in a, I think it was a Las Vegas casino, and that same trip that we did with my parents. I think those two are up there for me. I saw Geraldo uh, Rivera get into a minor bike accident with a little girl in Central <laughs> Park. That was good. <laughs> I saw did he report it or did he flee the scene? He was he was being responsible about it. I think he might have known her. I think it was just like a little bit of a they got tangled up. But my and I would love to say I I'm like play it cool. My default celebrity side of thing is to just point at the person and say their name over and over again. Sure. <laughs> like a, that that's like a panic yeah. Geraldo yeah. like, Rivera. Geraldo Rivera. Geraldo Rivera. <laughs> that's right, legit. Saw, okay, guys. I once saw Marcus Camby and another Knicks player. Maybe John Starks? Were they ever on the Knicks at the same time? I don't know. At Comp USA in White Plains, New York. Remember Comp USA? <laughs> I, do, I do, do remember Comp. Yeah, Compusa. I bet a lot like of our listeners Pusa. have never heard of Comp USA. Like a good portion are too young to know what Comp USA is. I mean, that's pretty like, it seems like Marcus Camby and John Starks. I don't think they were on the Knicks at once because I think Camby. It was Marcus Camby and another. Oh, no, it was Alan Houston. Oh, yeah, they were on the Knicks at once. Houston and Marcus Camby. You know, the Knicks train right near there. It was in White Plains. And it's really hard to miss Marcus Camby because he's about seven feet tall. So he's like halfway tall. He's like double the size of the shelves, you know? Yeah. So it's like, oh, it's Marcus Camby. And he was just there for his computing needs. Yeah. Can, I say, can I say one more story of a celebrity run-in just because it's like a funny career overview thing for me? Sure. Yes, I was in I was in a hot dog place in uh, in... I think in, it was in Westchester somewhere. I want to say like Rye, 
uh, and it was a really, really narrow, small hot dog place that I had like read about and sought out to write about. Was it thing. Walters? Uh, no, it was not Walters. It was uh, Pat's Hubba Hubba. Do you, are you? Do you know? No, Pat? I don't know them, but you do know Walters, right? I do know Walters. Yeah, yeah. Walters hot dogs, a great hot dog. Westchester destination. Anyway, continue. As is as is Pat's Hubba Hubba. I went into Pat's Hubba Hubba, and uh, and the only other person in there was Tim Tuffle with his family. And I had just interviewed Tim Tuffle like a week before that for something. And I just panicked. I panicked because I was like, I don't want this to be awkward. I don't know right. if Tuffle, I don't know if he's gonna recognize me or not. But like I like and so I wound up taking my hot dog to go just to not have to in any way to confront Tim Tuffle because of <laughs> professional awkwardness. That and, is very uncomfortable when you see the people you cover sort of out of context. Yeah, and that... it was just like, it was like, what has my life come to? That I'm like, oh God, it's Tim Tuffle in a hot dog place. I gotta get out of here. I once had that encounter. I was going to lunch with a colleague who doesn't work in sports at the Journal. And we were going to lunch like somewhere near our office. And Jeff Wilpon like walked past us on the street. Uh-huh. And I was covering the Mets at the time. That was very uncomfortable. I had a, I had a joke loaded up depending where that was going to go, where that story was going. But never mind. I do remember that. I think there was one particular trip when I was on the Mets beat when I kept running into Terry Collins. Like I ran into him and his wife at like 8 a.m. one morning after a game at a Pike Place Market in Seattle. And yeah, it was just like, Terry, oh, hey, Terry, how's it going? I'll see you in like four hours. Right. About, like <laughs> right. which Mets players injured today. You know? yeah. Yeah, I had, yeah, I had a hotel room next to Daniel Murphy one, one spring oh, training. Like, was this, yeah, spring training, that stuff happens. But he, I remember he told his, he told his wife that I was one of the good ones. It's <laughs> like, oh, all right. Did you do realize that the moment you weren't around, he said, actually, he sucks. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah. Well, this was fun. Uh, if anyone wants to share celebrity stories with us, please email them to us or tweet them at us. Maybe we'll do a another feature of celebrity, good celebrity encounters among our, our readers and listeners at some point in the newsletter. Ted. Thank you so much for being our guest. This was fun. Sorry we went so long. I have a lot to say. No, well, we, we could, I, I think people will enjoy it. And uh, yeah, this is great. We're glad to have the 30 cast back after a few, uh, a little bit of a hiatus. So you're, you're bringing it back. So we're glad to have you. Mike, anything else to add or are we signing off? That's it. You can follow Ted at, uh, at OG Ted Berg on the tweets. And you can read them at USA Today. Anything we're missing, Ted? You got a Snapchat or an Instagram story? Is there uh, anything you want to promote? Not on, not on Carrier Snapchat. pigeons. Uh, I mean, I'm technically on Snapchat, but I haven't. Do people still Snapchat? I don't it's think so. I just took it off my phone. I am OG Ted Berg on, like, basically every social media format. So follow him for sandwiches. Yeah. Follow him for sandwiches. All right. Well, thanks so much, Ted. Mike, this was fun. Uh, and thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.